How are you guys doing today? Good? Um, well, welcome to Redemption Church, um, and Merry Christmas. I hope that you guys are having a great Christmas season. I think I've already been to three or four Christmas parties, and uh, we're only halfway through the month, so I hope that you guys are enjoying um, the Christmas season as well. So at Redemption Church right now, we are going through a series called Emmanuel, God with us, where we're taking a look at the book of Matthew. We've been um, preaching through the book of Matthew for a, for a while now, for, for several months, uh, maybe longer than that, I don't even know. But, and so what we're doing is sort of going backwards through Matthew from where we are and looking at the places in Matthew where Isaiah is referenced, uh, and specifically in light of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll move on talking about some of those things. So let's pray. Holy Father, thank you that we have an opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for the joy that comes through Jesus. Thank you that it is a joy that is everlasting, that we can really find nowhere else other than in Jesus. God, this morning I pray as we look at your word, as we talk about what you would have us hear. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds. I pray that you would be glorified and I pray that Jesus would be lifted high. God, I understand that as I stand on this stage and speak that my words are of little importance, but God, I know that your words are of utmost importance. So God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that Jesus would be lifted high and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. Um, God, I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel, that you would be glorified, that we would be drawn to you, and that we might have joy because of Jesus. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son. Amen. So as we are celebrating the Christmas holidays, what are some of your favorite Christmas traditions? Do you have traditions that are important to you? and to your family. Over the years, my family um, has developed this tradition of on Christmas Eve, and when I say my family, my, uh, my mom uh, on Christmas Eve cooks like this big Italian dinner. My mom is not Italian, my, f- my family's not Italian, uh, but somewhere over time, it sort of developed that way. It used to be a, a much bigger deal where there would be lasagna and eggplant parmesan and meatballs and spaghetti, and uh, it's something that I always look forward to and still look forward to, quite frankly. Uh, eating spaghetti and meatballs the day before Christmas. Amy's family, uh, her grandparents and her parents developed a tradition a long time ago uh, to where they would go eat Chinese food on Christmas Eve, sort of like the movie A Christmas Story. Uh, the duck, the whole thing, right? I mean, it was just like the Christmas story. Um, uh, her family doesn't do that any longer, but for a long time, that's what they did. One of my favorite uh, holiday traditions is walking around and being a Grinch when I'm at work. And places like that, um, that's what I love to do. Um, you know, my kids love to drive around and look at lights. Uh, their favorite thing is to look at Christmas. Not, well, one of their favorite things is Christmas. Just drive around and look at lights. They've already asked about going to Lights of the South. I don't know if you guys have been there this year or, or have ever been there. But they love looking at Christmas lights. When you think about the holidays and you think about those Christmas traditions that define you and your family, let me ask you this question. What emotions fill you 
at Christmas time? What sort of emotions, feelings do you have? I've told you guys before that Christmas uh, brings a range of emotions my way. Um, my father died tragically on Christmas Eve in 1983. So there's not a Christmas that goes by now that that doesn't, that I don't think about that, right? That just affects me at Christmas time in one way or another. Uh, in, in light of that, though, both of my kids were born right before Christmas, uh, the 20th and the 21st of December. And Amy and I, our wedding anniversary is two days after Christmas. This year we'll be celebrating 19 years, um, which is awesome. But at Christmas time, I have these range of emotions, right? Where you're thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about the good things that have happened in your life around Christmas. You're thinking about your kids. I'm thinking about my father and just all this stuff. And so it's hard for me to think about Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the greatest gift that was ever given to mankind without thinking about these other things as well. So I have to sort of force myself to sit back and reflect on Christmas and what the advent of Jesus is about. I can't help but think that the birth of Christ and the incarnation of Christ on earth was really like the first cosmic Christmas card, God's announcement to the world of something incredible, an announcement that there's a reason to hope, an announcement that God is about to do something in Jesus that will change the course of history forever, that God will bring about justice and peace through Jesus, and knowing that in Jesus, God is doing what he promised all along that he would do brings me a certain amount of joy that could come from no holiday tradition, no memory, no spaghetti and meatballs or Chinese food, but knowing that God is doing something and God is up to something. And this idea of joy is interesting, right? Because as Christians over and over through scripture, we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord. We're commanded to be joyful over and over and over. And sometimes that's really hard for us in light of the circumstances of life. But here's what we've got to realize, that joy is part of the promise that God gave to us that is going to be fulfilled in Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9. This morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Mallory read them just a little bit ago. Um, and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4 in a few minutes. But let me set the stage for you in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, uh, at this point in the life of the nation of Israel, um, if you know the history of Israel, right, uh, Saul was king, David was king, Solomon was king, and then they divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel. And at the time of Isaiah, um, Israel is divided. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. Uh, it's actually at the very end of the road for the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, but the kingdoms are divided. King Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom. And God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz with a message that speaks into a real situation. The real situation is that the Assyrians are a world power and they're on the verge of taking over the world. It's actually during King Ahaz's reign of the southern kingdom that the northern kingdom of Israel that King Ahaz has nothing to do with, they go into captivity. They, they are conquered by the Assyrians and they go away. And so on the world stage, King Ahaz is being threatened by the Assyrians. There's two nations immediately to the north of Israel that are forming an alliance to be able to fight Assyria. And they come to King Ahaz and they say, 
You're going to join us or we're going to conquer you. And so God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz in the middle of that situation with a promise that God can help, with a promise that God can help. And as, a, and as Isaiah is talking about the current situation that the southern kingdom of Israel faces with imminent doom, Isaiah, through God's prompting, starts to talk about this Messiah that is promised to be with God's people. Isaiah chapter 7 through 11 is called the book of Emmanuel. It's part of Isaiah. And in Isaiah's chapter 7 through 11, the Messiah, Jesus, is referenced over and over and over. God is promising his people a future delivery while at the same time talking about the current situation that they face. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let me read them again. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as, of, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There are several things I want you to notice about Isaiah chapter 9 and the promise of God for his people. Number one, this prophecy references a very specific place, the land of Naphtali and Zebulon. If you think about Israel, if you can picture Israel in your mind, if you can't, just know that it's the northeastern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. It's a place where Jesus spent a major part of his ministry. In verse 2, this prophecy references light shining into a place of darkness. And during Christmas, we get shining lights, right? If you just look around this room, we get lights. We like to look at lights. I'm reminded of the movie Elf when Buddy the Elf is looking for the biggest Christmas tree with lights. You know what I'm talking about, right? We, we get lights at Christmas time. We like them. And Isaiah prophesies about a great light shining into the darkness, this prophecy represent, references great joy that comes from that light in verse 3. And in verse 4, God promises the release of burden for his people. In verse 6, God promises that this deliverer will be God himself. And in verse 7, God promises a kingdom that will never end. Jump with me over to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. In Matthew chapter 4, verses um, at the beginning of Matthew 4, Jesus is out in the desert. Uh, you may remember this. Jesus is out in the desert. He's in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights fasting, and Satan comes and tempts him. And immediately after that happened, if we pick up in Matthew chapter 4, 
verse 12, this is what we see. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In chapters 12, I mean, in verses 12 through 14 of Matthew 4 here, we see that Jesus heads to a very specific place, to the land of Naphtali and Zebulon, Capernaum, which is right by the Sea of Galilee, the same exact place that Isaiah referenced in Isaiah chapter 9. Here's what I didn't tell you. Zebulon and Naphtali were some of the very first tribes of Israel that were taken into captivity when the Assyrians came in, right? Very first, some of the very first to go away. And when this, when Matthew writes this book, it's been an extremely long time since that area of Israel, the area around the Sea of Galilee is called the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So it's pretty odd that Matthew would call it that because nobody else was calling it that when Matthew wrote this book, right? The reason he does it is to get us to think historically, to get us to think big picture, to get us to think about the prophecy regarding Zebulun and Naphtali that Isaiah referenced in chapter nine. It's so odd. Like if we were talking about Paris, we would talk about Paris, France. We wouldn't talk about Paris in the land of the Franks. Right? That's sort of what Matthew is doing here. He's referencing something very old, something very historical, referencing something very big picture. It's been a very long time since that area of, of Israel was called the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. In addition to that, that part of Israel has become incredibly religiously diverse. Matthew even says Galilee of the Gentiles when he's talking about it. It's not just a Jewish place, it's it's no longer a Jewish place. It was dark because God's people and God's word had been dispersed many years before. But Matthew points us to Isaiah 9. Remember the book of Emmanuel to reference what Jesus is doing here. And I think it's, I think it's pretty neat. But what Matthew is doing here is making the point that Jesus, the son of David, is beginning the restoration of God's kingdom at the very place where it began to fall apart 700 years prior. And that Jesus is doing something new, transforming this kingdom into the kingdom of heaven at the very place where God's covenant judgment had begun to fall so long before at the hand of the Assyrians. Jesus is making an announcement that God's kingdom is here. I'm reestablishing it. It's something new and it's something bigger and greater than you could have ever imagined. He's gone to the very place that Isaiah prophesied about in order to fulfill the promise of Isaiah 9-7 where God says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore 
And with that new kingdom, with the fulfillment of that promise, also comes the fulfillment of the promise that there will be the removal of gloom that we see referenced right at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9. Like a cosmic Christmas card, Jesus is announcing that the kingdom is here. Jesus is announcing that the gloom can be dismissed. The original readers of Matthew would have remembered the whole prophecy, the part about an everlasting kingdom, the part about, um, the part about joy, the whole thing, they would have remembered it. So Jesus has come to bring joy and to be the king and the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace that Isaiah talked about. That's what Jesus is doing here. And just like the angels announced his birth in Luke 2, Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm at the place. I'm reestablishing my kingdom. Now is the time that it's going to happen. The good news of the gospel that brings such joy is the news that the king has come to establish his reign. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is here to do what God said he would do. And understand this, it is good news in verse 17 of Matthew 4 when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's good news. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus talks about his kingdom, I want you to understand that probably what's meant here in light of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is meaning the reign of God, not the realm of God. When we think of kingdoms, we think, tend to think of places, like in Disney movies, right? I just took my kids and we went to see the new Disney movie Moana a couple of weeks ago. And the kingdom in that Disney movie is an island, right? It's, it's like a, an island. We're not talking about just a place here. For Jesus, it's something different. It's the reign or the rule of God breaking through into this world. The, the kingdom of God probably refers to his saving reign and not to his total providence. In one sense, God does reign over all. We know that. And at a second coming, we will see the realization of that complete and utter reign in a way that we have never seen before when Jesus establishes a new heaven and a new earth. But the kingdom of God is fulfilled partially in the present and will be consummated at the end of the age when Christ comes again. But here, the kingdom of God is referencing God's redemptive reign on earth, his saving reign. Have you ever gotten really good news before? Have you ever just gotten really, really good news? Somebody called you and told you something that just made you incredibly happy. When I think of good news, uh, something that comes to my mind is uh, the birth of my daughter, Natalie. Uh, Amy and I um, tried to have kids for several years before we had our first child. We, we weren't able to have kids without um, some fertility treatments. So we tried for a very long time to have kids. And uh, it was just an incredibly emotional, right, stressful time uh, for both Amy and I. And so when, when we found out, when we finally found out that the fertility treatments had worked and Amy 
um, through the grace of God, was able to, to, to get pregnant, and we knew that we were going to have a child. I'll, I'll never forget the joy on my wife's face at that announcement. Uh, it's something that will be with me forever. It's good news. And the good news of God breaking through into the world and establishing his kingdom is good news. When we think of repentance, we don't think of repentance as a good thing because we think of repentance as us admitting that we've done something wrong, that we've sinned, and we're ashamed and we want to turn away from repentance. But repentance is a gift from God. And it's good news that Jesus calls us to repent and turn to him, that the kingdom of God make breakthrough into our life. God's saving reign breaks through into our world as Jesus calls us to repent, as Jesus calls us to turn to him and increasingly submit all of our life to his lordship. That's good news. We know that to repent means to turn away from something else and instead turn to Jesus. And part of what we get when we repent and turn to Jesus is the joy that Isaiah promised as God's kingdom, God's kingdom breaks through into our life. Repentance is a gift. And through repentance, God is glorified as we turn to him and we receive the joy that comes from being in that right relationship with our father. John Piper says it this way, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it a little differently, but the point is the same. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And we enjoy God by turning from our little kingdoms and turning to the kingdom that God established through Jesus as we turn to him and him alone. It's the kingdom that defeated Satan's sin and death for all time. Remember Isaiah chapter nine, verse four, we get the joy of Jesus freeing us from our sin, of releasing us from captivity, of lifting our burdens and changing us into something new. There's great joy on this side of the cross. We know that in Jesus' advent and his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death for all time. But we also know that the scars of Satan's sin and death still affect our world. Sin has marred everything. Satan still prowls like a roaring lion and death and pain and suffering and sickness still abound. Just this past Friday, I went to a funeral uh, up around Charlotte, North Carolina, where I had to watch one of my cousins bury her 27-year-old daughter who had suffered her entire life with cerebral palsy. It's, our world is still affected by Satan's sin and death. Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death. We'll see the full realization of that one day. But God's kingdom defeated Satan's sin and death for us that we might have joy through Jesus and not through our circumstances, that God might be glorified as we enjoy him and him alone. In 1719, Isaac Watts published a hymn that we know as Joy 
to the world. I'm not going to sing it because you would not like that. But let me read you some of the words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Y'all are doing the rest of it in your minds, right? Verse two, joy to the earth, the savior reigns. Let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. We sing this song at Christmas time, and we sing this song to celebrate the first advent of Jesus. But when Isaac Watts wrote this song, it was not about Christmas. He actually wrote this song about the second coming of Jesus. It's a meditation on Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Just listen. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. And that's what that hymn is about. Jesus came to earth and we celebrate that advent at Christmas time. He reigns now because he came to us as a child. He lived, died, rose, and was exalted to the right hand of the Father as Savior and King. He will come again a second time. And there we will see the great fulfillment and culmination of the promise of a kingdom that never ends. But he doesn't just reign in the future. He doesn't just reign at a distance. He reigns in our hearts and minds as we repent and turn to Jesus, as we turn from whatever it is that our heart worships, as we turn from whatever it is that we think brings us joy, when we turn from whatever functional idols that we pursue every day and turn to Jesus, Jesus rules in our hearts and minds as we increasingly submit all of our life to the Lordship of Jesus. Even though we have not yet seen the culmination of his reign, Jesus is turning back the effects of Satan's sin and death. And we know this because John 3.36 tells us that we are no longer under wrath because of Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of Jesus. And even on a much more practical level, Miraculous healings and medical advances are all marvelous works of Christ, pushing back the physical effects of the fall in places where it once had complete sway. But because of Jesus, we will one day see an incredible culmination of Jesus' reign that will look entirely different than it does now. He rules and he reigns now in our hearts and minds as we repent and turn to him like he told us to do. But one day, it will be entirely different. And with his rule and reign now, and with his rule and reign in the future, there is incredible joy as he sets captives free, as he unburdens those who carry heavy weights, as he defeats sin, as he removes the curse. There's great joy. So church, do what the song says and receive your king, 
prepare him room. Repent and turn from whatever it is that rules your heart and turn to Jesus instead. Turn from wherever it is that you were trying to find joy and turn to Jesus instead. Turn from your idols and turn to Jesus instead because there is great joy. There will not be joy in your circumstances because life is difficult. People will let you down. Your idols will fail you, but Jesus will not. And the only place to find joy is in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is the only place that will find, to find joy that will last forever. You may find some things that make you happy for a little while. But church, prepare him room, repent and turn. What is it that you need to turn from? What is it that rules your heart? Where is it that you are looking for joy? Rejoice because Jesus is king. Jesus has conquered the curse. Jesus has beaten Satan's sin and death. Jesus rules the nations. So rejoice, sing, be glad, but repent and turn to Jesus. And that's our call this morning. We can sit here and talk all morning about how Isaiah is referenced in Matthew. I can give you information all day about how the Old Testament shows up in the book of Matthew. But so what if we don't hear why it's there? It's there because God promised that he would do something and he did it in Jesus. And with what God does, there is great joy as we return, as we turn to Jesus. Because Jesus is true, he is gracious, he is loving, and he is coming again. His second coming will look drastically different than his first. He won't be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be a majestic, conquering king. And his reign will overwhelm the world and all things will be reconciled to Jesus as he establishes a new kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth that looks nothing like what we know now, suffering will end, King Jesus will rule, and there will be great joy like you and I can only imagine. But that joy is available now because Jesus broke through into our world and began to establish God's kingdom. We can be a part of that kingdom as we turn to Jesus and leave the things behind that will ultimately fail us. Let me let you see how this story ends in Revelation chapter 22. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Isaiah promised a light that would break through into the darkness. Revelation reminds us that Jesus is that light. There is no other light. That is the light that brings joy as we turn to Jesus away from the other things in our life that we are pursuing. We're going to enter into a time of response. Um, and during this time of response, I would encourage you above all else to take a few moments as you sit, sing, or whatever else it is that you do and reflect on what it means to turn away from the things that occupy our hearts and minds and turn to Jesus instead. What are the things in your life that you need 
to turn from. During this time of response, in a moment, the band's going to come back up. They're going to lead us in a few uh, worship songs. We're going to have the opportunity to worship by singing. Um, during this time, there's a, there's a giving table in the back. You have an opportunity to worship by giving uh, through tithing or, or giving back there. You have an opportunity to worship, um, like I said, by responding, thinking, praying on what Jesus has called you to. You also have an opportunity to worship by responding through communion. Uh, on a weekly basis, we do communion here at Redemption Church. Because of this, um, God's word tells us that as we take communion, we're remembering what it is that Christ has done for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel is true. And so I would invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus and God gives you the freedom to do so in a moment, to come down this middle aisle, um, go in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim that you believe that it is true. If you're here and you can't do those things, I would encourage you to sit where you are instead of taking communion. But if you can and you want to celebrate and remember and proclaim what Christ has done, I would invite you to do that. Let me pray for us and we'll move on from there. Holy Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that before the foundations of the world, God, you knew that Jesus would be our great light. You knew that Jesus would come to earth, live a sinless life, die a death in our place that we might be rightly reconciled to you. God, thank you for Jesus. And God, thank you that in your kingdom and thank you that through Jesus, there can be joy that exists in no place else. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that joy in our lives through Christ and Christ alone. God, I pray that you would call us to Jesus, call us to turn from whatever occupies our hearts and minds, that we might turn to Jesus, that we might come to you, that you might be glorified and that we might have great joy in Christ and in Christ alone. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.